and welcome to the Beyond Your Research Degree podcast by the University of Exeter Doctoral College. Hi, my name's Debbie Kinsey. I'm a PGR at Exeter Medical School and I'm going to be your host for today. My name's Dr. Caitlin McDonald. I graduated in 2011 with a degree in Arab and Islamic Studies from here at the University of Exeter uh, at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies. And um, hard as it is to believe that it's now nine years later, um, it's, it's really interesting to look back on what's happened since that time and consider the skills that I took uh, away from the university and how I'm applying them now. Um, so maybe to give you a bit of an update on where I am, um, I currently work as a digital anthropologist at an organization called the Leading Edge Forum, which does uh, technology and strategy research for large businesses. Um, and just in the last, mo- the last month, um, I was at the, the UN delivering a talk at the International Labor Organization. Um, I then hosted a dinner at the House of Lords about AI ethics. Um, and I've done a range of interesting and exciting things since then, but it's really interesting to think about um, this particular month in particular and how that um, the kind of culmination of where I started and how I got here. So I started working at the Leading Edge Forum about uh, two years ago, and before that I was based at what was the Times Educational Supplement, but is no longer known as that, it's just the TES, it's no longer owned by the Times, mm-hmm. where I was working as a, um, uh, an, uh, digi- an analyst, um, a data analyst, and um, working with data systems quite a bit. Um, so all of that sounds really different from where I started, which was very much Middle East studies based. Um, but really the kind of the through line, the thread for me was that a lot of the research that I was doing when I was doing my PhD was very um, digital ethnography based. So I was looking at um, patterns of knowledge and how they shift around the world, in particular for um, dancers who um, often um, for Middle Eastern dance want to base their practice or to base the, the, the center, the hub of their knowledge in Cairo or sometimes in um, Turkey or in other kinds of regions, but in my particular case, I was looking at dancers who um, had a dance tradition that was based out of Cairo. And what ended up happening was I did a lot of ethnography around, um, in particular, how people were using Facebook groups, but also other social media channels um, to spread the, the knowledge and, and the creation of knowledge about how the, the dance, um, the kind of mythology and um, um, epistemology of what the dance meant to people. And while this doesn't sound really revolutionary now, um, way back in 2006, 2007, 2008, when I was first doing that, um, that was fairly new. You know, um, there weren't a huge amount of digital uh, humanities tools at the time, um, and certainly we weren't using so anything like this wonderful lab that we have now. I think this was the old um, print print shop at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so it was really interesting that then what ended up happening is I moved into a very quantitative role, which when you become an anthropologist, you don't necessarily think of yourself as a quantitative person. Some might. Um, I did not. Um, mm-hmm. But it was that having that kind of digital skills component that really was able to help me make the transition from um, a very academic role into a much more kind of commercially minded role. Um, And I didn't really intend to leave academia, but around the time that I was leaving, um, there were huge budget cuts, so there simply weren't the kind of resources available for people to um, have um, postdocs and um, subsequent academic careers. In particular, as an immigrant to this country, um, I was I needed to have a role if I wanted to stay working here that was um, not short term. So it had to be a full time full time contract. Um, and luckily, I was able to find something that worked out, which was with the TES. Um, and they really wanted someone who could help them uh, to an extent up their research skills. But a lot of the role was really about the kind of day to day operational knowledge um, to help the business run. So that was very, very different from what I'd previously been doing. But having those kind of um, interrogative skills 
um, those kind of basics of humanities research skills, those basic social sciences research skills, was really helpful for doing things like um, helping question why a particular thing was being done in a particular way. Um, in, in particular, I was doing a lot of kind of daily reporting of um, what was happening on the website and um, what kinds of numbers were coming back in terms of circulation and um, all those kinds of things that um, digital businesses do. Um, and really the thing that was extremely useful was uh, being able to turn around and say, hey, is anyone actually reading this report? You know, something as simple as this ritual that we go through on a daily basis of producing these numbers, um, how are they feeding into our decision making? And in some senses, that questioning was perhaps not always very welcome, but it also was then helpful to create co the conditions for change. And I think that the social sciences are um, not always really great about talking about the, the transferable skills outside of academia that absolutely do exist. Um, and I think now we're starting to see, in particular with um, another research area that I do, which is all around AI ethics, um, you're starting to see some of those kinds of questions emerging around um, who is in charge of this knowledge or um, what are the kinds of um, uh, different weights that we put on um, how we assess particular aspects of artificial intelligence and its relevance and its usefulness and who is it relevant to and who's benefiting and who's not benefiting. Um, and I think that having a general social sciences research background, um, regardless of whether your specialism is in ethics or um, in, you know, particular aspects of digital technologies, um, you know, having that kind of questioning mind is, is a really useful thing. And I think that um, people who work in digital contexts are starting to appreciate those qualitative skills again in a way that perhaps has been a little bit subsumed recently. Um, so those kinds of questions around um, how is this going to benefit not only direct users of our services or our products or whatever it is that we're building, but also that kind of contextual knowledge around um, how is this affecting other people who are going to be impacted by the decisions that we're making. Um, there is renewed curiosity and interest in those kinds of decisions, and so increasingly um, organizations, businesses, and um, non-commercial organizations are looking to um, the humanities as well as engineering to, to make up the body of knowledge of um, creating those products effectively. So I would say now is a really good time actually to be in the digital humanities. Um, and to some extent, no matter what you're doing, your work is always going to have a digital component. So recognizing that, you know, when you think about the degree that I did, which was very much based in transmission of knowledge and very much about dance, um, you wouldn't necessarily think that that would lead to where it did lead, but in, in other ways it makes total sense. It was a logical chain of transmission of, I was looking at this digital component of how that knowledge was happening, and now we are even more immersed in digital te technologies. Mm -hmm. Our careers are even more immersed in this, no matter who you are. So having that background of having done that kind of, that kind of study was really useful to get me where I am now. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like... Obviously, like all PhDs are very specific, so yours was around dance and transmission of knowledge between dancers and creation mm -hmm. of knowledge in that way. But then it sounds like you're talking about um, thinking about thing, those things more broadly mm -hmm. um, in terms of the general skills you develop. And um, how did you find translating those things from kind of academic speak to then going into a non-academic Non-academic role, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say that initially it was a real challenge for me, partly mm -hmm. because um, when I first was looking for a job. Um, I still was applying for very academic roles as well as starting to look beyond that. So mm -hmm. I was looking at a lot of roles in market research. So I was looking at the National Center for Social Research. I was looking at SRE UK, um, you know, YouGov, places like that. Um, and they have a more kind of traditional, I would say, research bent. Whereas mm -hmm. if, you mo if you move into um, 
you know, um, user research in a company, for example, um, and most organizations do have a user research arm if they have a digital component, even if that's not their kind of core business. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the language of that is very different from what perhaps you might be talking about if you're coming out of the social sciences or have a real kind of pure research background. So, but the advantage of being an anthropologist or a sociologist or someone who studies the way that people think about knowledge is that you can then apply all of the research skills that you have to your own situation. So you can notice the kinds of patterns of knowledge that are happening in your organization. You can notice the particular language that people are using around things and say, oh, okay, um, you know, this group is talking about um, doing A-B testing. You know, I might describe that differently in my own um, historical research background or whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, but actually the actual things that you need to do, the mechanics of the research are the same. Um, mm-hmm. So simply learning the kind of patterns of the patterns of life and work in the organization that you find yourself in is a really useful skill to apply. So I spent um, probably two or three years mostly working in a, a digital engineering team, people that were doing actual software creation. And my role there was um, to assist with a data migration that was happening. So um, we, we essentially had a place that we'd been storing all of this um, hard quantitative data that we've been collecting over the years about how the website that we had was being used. And then we were changing everything about the underlying infrastructure and technology that we had into a completely different data storage system. And my role was to make sure that um, as we were doing that, nothing got lost, um, the data was collected in the same way, um, you know, nothing went missing, nothing suddenly looked out of place. Um, and so part of that was doing things like um, mapping the infrastructure from how the old data system worked, doing what's called an entity relationship diagram, um, and looking at what the new entity relationships would be, so the places where the data was collected from and stored. Um, And as I was doing those, I was like, this is a lot like doing um, essentially um, family tree diagrams. Um, You know, it's very much the same thing where you're looking at where are things transmitting from and to, um, so you can use all those kinds of same skills. Um, And also just the the, the kind of... um, that sense that I would get when I would go in and if I didn't know what people were talking about or if I felt like um, there was something unspoken or something happening I didn't quite understand, I would behave exactly as though I were doing an ethnography with a community, which is to try and treat the knowledge that I was a part of as being something that was I, that I was studying, you know. Um, and so kind of having that observational hat on, um, first of all, it really helped defuse some situations that could have otherwise been quite personally demanding because if you just view it as, I'm learning about what's going on within this group, um, then your kind of personal sense of responsibility about that, um, while still high because you are working there, mm-hmm. um, it, it doesn't feel quite so um, rooted in your sense of identity, I suppose, because you can also treat it as, I'm, I'm viewing this as objectively separate from myself. Um, and also it then, you know, eventually you will pick up the lingo and you will learn the skills and you will realize the patterns that are happening within your organization. Um, and that's really helpful for, um, putting the right pieces in place at the right time to achieve the things that you want to achieve in your career. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like um, learning the language when you're there, using those skills you already have mm-hmm. to kind of pick up on that. And um, precisely. Yeah. yeah. And how did you find it, kind of before that stage, kind of making your applications, trying to yeah. write and tailor things in such a way that you're using a language you're not quite sure of yet, and all that Excuse kind of. Thing. Um, that probably is the hardest piece, I would mm-hmm. say, because you're not yet immersed enough in the transition that you want to make to really know what you need to say so that your legitimacy of knowledge in that space is, is um, understood. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also simply don't have the, the connections, perhaps, that you would do once you've moved into the space. So I'd say if I were going to do anything differently, 
Um, probably what I would do is, um, you know, and especially for students who are listening to this now that are maybe in their first or second year, um, I would have spent a little bit more time thinking about um, how am I going to make the kinds of connections I want to make to A, understand the spaces that are available to me, like what are the options that are out there, and B, make the connections um, to really um, form the right network so that at the right time I have the right information about what roles are available um, and potentially who can introduce me to the right kind of a person to, to um, know about a job that's, that's out there um, and the right kinds of skills. So because skills do change um, in, in terms of need, employer need, um, what they're looking for will change over time. So um, having an idea of how that space is shifting will allow you to see not only what's on the, on the market right now or what, what's needed in the market, but you can get an understanding of what's going to be needed by the time I leave um, because you can kind of observe the trends that are happening and say, ah, okay, so if I put some resources into, um, for example, learning how to do network mapping or um, doing a bit more on the kind of digital skills side, um, then I'll be more valuable than if I'm spending time doing something else. Which isn't to say, of course, that you shouldn't focus on your, your degree. I mean, you know, it's such a kind of, you have to get over that hurdle more than anything else, right? Yeah. Um, that is the thing to get through. Um, but I'd say... Um, a really crucial skill is networking and I know that everyone always says that and um, people find it can find it very overwhelming um, but I think the thing to remember is networking is a skill that allows you to understand um, some knowledge that's out there in the world that you don't yet have mm -hmm. in an informal way um, so if you view it in that sense then it can be less overwhelming um, and I found um, as well once I started learning to have an objective when I went to a networking event, so I go to a lot of um, digital skills meetups in London, or um, uh, I, I try and attend a lot of webinars, um, or whatever it is that I'm trying to learn about, um, I look for places where I can find that information, um, and in particular where I potentially can share some information as well. Um, because people are always willing to um, engage with you, first of all, if you're interested in them and ask them questions. Everyone loves talking about themselves. This is like the, the crucial, skill of good networking is um, if you can get someone, if you can express interest in them, people are usually very willing to tell you more about what they're doing. Um, but also people are usually um, have some kind of a need and if you can fulfill that need in some way, um, like having a slightly adjacent skill or a different skill that they're looking for, um, then they'll want to talk to you as well. Um, so, so building that skill of um, saying, okay, there is um, a big data um, meetup um, on Wednesday, I'm going to go, and my, my goal is to find out either a little bit more about this particular topic or to meet someone that works in this business or to find someone that has this job title and just speak to them a little bit about whatever my objective is. Um, having that focus can really, really make it much easier because um, you feel less overwhelmed by um, the idea of networking in general. That can be such a huge kind of topic and kind of focusing it on something smaller to achieve um, can, make, can make life just a little bit less overwhelming yeah, yeah yeah definitely I think a lot of people do get cause oh you've got a network but then what does that actually mean what, what does, does it look entail? like in practice yeah. so kind of yeah that's a really good tip of going to something with an objective but mm. kind of having a little bit of reciprocity in that like maybe there's yeah. things you can offer as well as listening yeah. and getting people to talk about themselves yeah and time. honestly the other thing that I would say which is a really good tip is um, even if you're fairly early in your career especially if you're looking at a non-academic role um, getting up there and being a speaker so um, you know it gives it gives you a chance to showcase what you're doing or the, the kinds of knowledge and skills that you have 
Um, but it also gives people an excuse to talk to you at a networking event. And even if you're an introvert, actually, as, as scary as it can be to go on stage, um, giving a talk is a really excellent way of uh, putting the burden on others to come and talk to you. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to feel like you're trying to muscle your way in to speak to someone else or to identify a friendly face in the crowd because everyone knows that you're so-and-so that talked about the thing. And then they might want to come ask you questions. So it's a really great way of, um, you know, it's essentially you saying, I'm here, I can talk about this. Um, and I'd say the real value is then in the personal connections, the one-on-one connections that you make after you've given the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so even a short, um, you know, in particular, um, when I think about the technology scene, which is mostly what I work in, um, there are tons of events, in particular in London where I live, um, you could probably go to multiple, you'd have your choice of events to go to every evening, and typically they're very short form talks, two to three minutes about a subject of interest. Um, So there's usually lots of opportunities to get in kind of on the ground floor of the ladder of speaking, as it were. Um, If you're in a place that has less accessible resources in that way, um, there are definitely a lot of online resources. Um, And in particular, I think now that there is so much fear about physically being lots of people together, um, lots of the kinds of events that I would typically have gone to are going to be thinking about moving online more and more. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that we develop essentially digital etiquette, so, um, you know, um, how people develop those kinds of informal connections is going to become increasingly important. You know, it's it's relatively easy to put together a podcast or a webinar that is um, one-way broadcast content, but creating those connections that those net- networking events are really valuable for. Um, there are very few ways that people are good at that right now, but I think increasingly that's something that people will get good at. So I'd say look for opportunities in that space where um, you can not only watch a piece of content, but also in some way contribute to an ongoing dialogue and meet people through that kind of a, a mechanism. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples of um, good kind of asynchronous or at, at a distance um, ways that people can learn and connect with one another. Um, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters about subjects of interest to me professionally as well. Um, usually reaching out to someone and saying, I read this thing or I have a question about whatever it is. Um, you won't always have 100% success with that. People get a lot of demands on their time, particularly as they um, get more skilled or experienced in their space. But often people are, again, willing to talk about something or willing to connect with you, mm-hmm. um, you know, to answer a question or to be involved or engaged in something. Um, people are typically very generous with their time, you know, especially if you're only asking for 10 minutes or, you know, whatever it is, a small, a small chunk of time is usually a good way to go in, particularly if you can be specific about your ask. Um, that really helps people to engage with you quickly is um, instead of being like, hey, I read your thing, will you be my mentor? Um, that's, that's often too open-ended. But if you say, I read your thing, it was interesting, specifically I have a question about blah, you can often then open a dialogue in that way. Yeah, so kind of being specific and kind of very much time-limited in what mm-hmm. you're asking of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. yeah, and it's really interesting to think about um, kind of non-face-to-face sort of face in person ways you can do networking so I think a lot of people think of networking as you've got to go to this event and a lot of PGRs are part-time or they mm-hmm. have caring responsibilities mm-hmm. and they just think oh I just can't do that but actually there are these other ways that yeah you can get involved. Yeah and like I say I think that those kind of online and asynchronous abilities are mm-hmm. um, or the necessity for those is going to become um, increasing over the next few months and probably years after that as well. Um, you know, because businesses have long been looking for ways to encourage less business travel, for example, and it's always been like, oh, it's too hard, there's no way to do this, it's impossible. Um, And one of my current research areas is how digital technologies are actually changing um, the physical spaces that people work in. So right now is a real kind of fascinating live experiment for me to watch 
the way that businesses are responding to the current um, pandemic crisis. Um, and I think that that really will change a lot of the things that we're thinking about. In particular, um, you look at things like Slack channels for um, technology conferences have, off, have always been very popular. Um, but now it's it's going from that being a kind of adjacent thing to the event to being that is the event. Um, you know, video conferencing, again, it's not like that's a new technology, but the way that people get comfortable with using those things, in particular in large groups, um, is going to be really interesting. Um, I think um, how people understand the, the visual and audio cues that they're getting on multiple person calls is going to be interesting because you often have these kind of slightly weird signals where um, if you were in person, so of course, you know, we're probably sitting about four or five feet apart as we're recording this, po this podcast, and that has a, a particular kind of um, etiquette about the way that we do distancing. Um, but if you're in a video conferencing situation, people often have the camera at a slightly weird distance, so you either feel like you're too close or you're too far away, and that gives different cues to how you perceive that interaction. Mm -hmm. Or they have the microphone too close, and it's like they're breathing on you. I, I don't know if you've had that experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everyone has. And it's um, you, it, that really sets up a very different kind of interaction. And I think that as um, these technologies become ever more ubiquitous, people are going to have to be getting better at understanding what those implications are of sound and of sight and what that means for people's um, comfort level of distancing. Um, so that, for me, is a very fascinating subject right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's so much to explore. And yeah. it's going to be interesting how it develops, like, over the next couple of months, especially. Definitely. Um, yeah. But yeah, you mentioned that you thought networking would be particularly useful for people in the early stage of their PhD, just in mm -hmm. terms of finding out about what different industries are doing, how mm -hmm. things are moving and trends, and then they can use that to think about, oh, what skills do I need to pick up and develop? And yeah. um, So if someone was interested in doing the kind of role that you do, like as a digital mm -hmm. anthropologist and all the various things that that's include, um, what kinds of experiences would be useful for people to... Mm -hmm try and pick up alongside or as part of their PhD? Yeah. Um, I think one of the, it's important to focus on one of the reasons that I think it's important to do this early in your academic career is because when you are working in academia, unless you are doing something part-time or you have prior experience outside of academia, um, the people who are teaching you so often don't have the experience of working outside of academia. Mm -hmm. So they're simply not in a very good position to advise you about if you want to explore non-academic options what that transition looks like, what kinds of skills are being looked for. They can't really advise you on the kind of non-academic lingo unless mm -hmm. they themselves are also doing some of this stuff. This is all, of course, very context-dependent. You have some departments who are very different, or you have um, university support services which can help you. But um, in general, my experience when I was a PhD student was, um, and, and that of many others that I spoke to, um, was that they simply weren't able to bridge that gap into um, the commercial realm because they didn't have the right advice at the time. And being an anthropologist and someone who does a lot of ethnography, um, I always think that the best way of learning about something is going to immerse yourself in that thing and then experiencing it for yourself. Yeah. So finding an internship or um, some kind of work experience, I know it's less common for older people to be doing those, um, but you can usually find something. Um, and there are often places that will offer short work placements even to postgraduate students, mm. um, although it is, you know, sometimes they're not quite very well set up for that. But you know, there are definitely places that are doing it, especially if they're interested either in your area of research or the kinds of creative skills that you can bring to the situation that you're looking at. Um, and doing those fairly early on in your career um, gives you an opportunity to understand more about yourself, what you like and what you don't like, um, instead of waiting until the end and thinking, okay, I'm just going to set out in the wide world and having this wonderful um, badge of my degree is going to tell people something about who I am and um, the kinds of skills I have. 
um, often in a commercial setting, um, you know, you might recognize the value of a PhD, but you won't understand how that applies to your business. Mm-hmm. Um, so particular for um, early people who are just out of the PhD, um, it's a hard sell because in essence, from an employer perspective, they're seeing you as just a regular graduate who is a little bit more expensive. Um, and that can be challenging um, mm-hmm. to overcome that. You know, I'd say after your first job or first couple of jobs, um, when you move into either a more managerial role or a more strategic looking role, um, then people begin to value your academic experience more than they did when you were first out of the gate. So that's really tough because that's kind of the biggest hurdle is, is getting into your first job. It's a very much kind of a catch-22 situation. But coming in um, from your, your postgraduate experience, having had some commercial experience as well, um, puts you in a much um, stronger position then to be looking at a commercial role because people can um, people will make assumptions about your commercial experience um, when they're reviewing your CV or your, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you're being in your hiring process, then they will about um, someone who's just coming with no experience that's obvious to them. Yeah, so it sounds like it's really important in those first few roles to really think of, to really keep in mind that someone else won't know, understand what a PhD is or Precisely. all the skills that that'll involve. Mm-hmm. So you really have to work at both getting other experiences maybe, but then also how you kind of market those things, I guess, mm-hmm. what those skills yeah. mean from your PhD. It's not just, I did this degree. Yeah. And that there's nothing about, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and also um, it's worth remembering that in a commercial setting, the word research can mean very different things. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, doing some, doing a little bit of research on what is the commercial world looking for and what do those kinds of roles do? Um, and if I'm, if I'm right, um, uh, oh gosh, um, the, the PGR resource that I'm forgetting the name of, but it's like academia.act.uk or something like that. Um, yeah. I can find it and yeah. ask it to be linked in That would be awesome. Thing. Thank yeah. you. Um, so so there's some good kind of role descriptions of, you know, what does a UX designer do? And mm-hmm. um, what does a, um, a commercial analyst do? And, and things of that nature that are just kind of general descriptions of jobs that are out there in the market. And getting an understanding of what the language is that's used around those roles um, is really helpful because you can then tailor your CV to reflect those skills specifically mm-hmm. and in particular to take some projects that you've done and demonstrate how those skills relate to that role. So essentially it means you as the the person coming into the job, um, you have to be a bit more forward stepping and thinking to um, to to the commercial person to give them an understanding of um, what you want them to see about that that relates to their job that they have on the market. And that can be challenging because again, sometimes the language is um, you know, very jargonistic in particular and mm. you know, if you've worked in a commercial setting, you might understand the particularities of what they're looking for, whereas if you haven't, um, you don't really know what they're looking for. But um, trying to get informal interviews with people just to understand what they're specifically asking or um, getting examples of prior work that other people who are in that field have done. So that's why networking isn't just about um, learning from people who are already um, who hiring managers. It's not just about trying to find people who are looking for, um, you know, who have jobs on offer, but also about meeting people in those roles and finding out what their backgrounds were and how they got into that role. So it's really important. Even just peer networking can be super important to to understand how they bridged that gap and how they got into that space. Yeah, because I say there's a lot to do in terms of um, not having assumptions yourself that someone else will understand what you're talking about. Mm. They're not assuming that you also know what they're talking about. So when Mm -hmm. they say research and you say I've done this research, you might be talking about two completely different things Mm -hmm. and you might not 
either have a good match or they might not realize that you might be a good match and yeah. um, talking to other people already in the field and their experiences can really help to sort of bridge those gaps and find that language like you say before you're fully immersed in whatever field it is and all that kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah precisely yeah. yeah so are you um say if someone was applying to work with you are there particular things that you are looking for in terms of how people put those things across or things you're particularly like not looking for or things you're like nope don't do that <laughs> yeah um let me answer that question in two ways so where i work now we are essentially a small consortium of researchers who have very different skills so mm -hmm. you can think of that in an academic setting as being like an area skills department where you might have an economist and an anthropologist and a musicologist and whoever else that are all working on either a particular geographic region or some kind of conceptual region, but they all have very, very different skills that they're bringing to the table. And they might not even work very closely together, although they might on some projects. Um, so that's really where I work now is like that. We all have very specialized skills. I'm the only digital anthropologist in the team. We have yeah. other people who have more skills that are um, focused on looking at things like um, digitization and um, cloud technologies and um, st organizational strategy and um, um, some in some cases software engineering concepts and things like that so um, we all have very very different skills um, so when we look for someone um, we're typically looking for someone who has different skills than what we already have I would say um, in the roles that we're doing um, if I was hiring someone to be an assistant to me mm. um, then I probably would be looking um, for usually I've done that in, in a kind of short-term project way um, so in that case, it will very much depend on what the project is. Um, when we hire um, into the, the LEF more broadly, um, we probably would be looking for somebody with a fair amount of commercial experience already. So I probably wouldn't see that as a, a good role, a good starting role for somebody who has a PhD. But um, you know, I've managed to make it there eventually. Yeah. So um, I think if you want to work in an organization that's like the, the one that ours is, then um, it's a matter of um, figuring out what kinds of um, stepping stones you need to put in place along the way to get there. Mm. So to answer the question um, more from the perspective of my old job when I was doing a more kind of um, uh, data science-y um, data analysis background, um, when we were first hiring um, people who were typically um, coming straight out of their degrees for junior analyst roles, um, that was a very quantitatively oriented department. So we were typically looking for some examples of um, statistical knowledge um, some potentially familiarity with um, statistical package software. Um, and interestingly, there's not a lot of crossover between academic usage of those things. So you typically might be doing SPSS or um, quite a lot of stuff with R, potentially some stuff with Python, um, and what um, commercial organizations use in those spaces. Um, obviously, all the math is the same, but they simply are using different kinds of software packages. So um, we wouldn't always be looking for some experience in those commercial um, packages, which are things like Tableau and ClickView and um, uh, um, um, a software package called Looker. Um, but if they had some, that was usually perceived as an, as an advantage. Um, but if they had Python or R or other stuff, um, we knew that they'd worked with statistical package software before, and that was OK. Um, we also were looking for people who, at the time, again, very quantitative role. but. Um, we wanted people who could look at a set of data and see where there were irregularities or unusual things happening so that they could then um, raise a challenge in terms of either how the data was being collected or an anomaly of some kind in what was happening with the data. So you needed to have a bit of an investigative hat. Um, 
And I would say my role there as an anthropologist was much more about um, assisting people with the, the kind of more ephemeral qualities of um, questioning those things. So um, while I did have a very quantitative role when I was there, um, I wasn't necessarily doing a lot of the kind of um, data science side of things. A lot of it was more the summary statistics and then, oh, okay, we've noticed that there's an unusual pattern. What are some creative ideas we can think about, about in terms of why that might be? Um, so you needed that mixture of people who could do the, the, the crunchier side of the math, but also say things like, all the schools are on holiday this week, or um, there's been a strike in uh, Chicago teaching, um, in the Chicago Teaching Union, so therefore um, we're having less people who are logging on to share their stories with us this week, um, or whatever it might be. So there was kind of that social side in terms of um, understanding what, you know, if you see something unusual, what might it be? So a lot of my role in the end was really about training the newer um, trainees. So they would come in with a more kind of hard sciences background. And then my role would be to help them question when you see something unusual, why might that be? So they could answer a lot of questions about this looks weird, but they didn't necessarily know what to do with that information. And my role was to help them understand that, you know, yeah. how could you then question this more broadly? Yeah. So it's kind of um, combining those that kind of uh, mm. hard sciences and social sciences type stuff together. And Precisely. And I would yeah. say, if you, depending on the size of the um, organization that you're with, you often mm. find that you get blended teams. Mm. Um, so, and that can be a real strength when you're able to, um, when you're able to have people who have strengths in different areas, it allows you to see information in a different way than uh, if you are just one person who's looking at it in one way. Um, mm. And of course, there's always um, the wonderful idea of having everyone have all of the skills, but people are simply going to have different strengths and recognizing mm. where they can contribute the most is really important for any organization to do. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it also sounds like you're saying, um, say for your current role, um, maybe that's a person that's listening's dream role, they want to work in that team, but it's okay that you won't necessarily do that straight away to think about the kind of, okay, what are the steps and experiences I need mm -hmm. to get to that point if that's the kind of thing that I want to be aiming for. Yeah, precisely. So yeah. a good example would be like, there is no way that I would have the job that I have now, mm. even though my role is much more qualitative than it was previously if I hadn't had my experience where I was doing essentially the kind of hard number crunching for the past six years before that. Mm. Um, because it gave me experiences like managing a team, gave me a lot of organizational operational experience. So I understood the different parts of what most businesses have in terms of the kinds of ways that they're set up. Um, gave me a lot of experience around um, kind of standard ways of doing commercial modeling for different kinds of things. So then when I go into businesses now where, um, where I'm advising them, I usually understand their organizational setup pretty well um, because you know, though of course there are differences, there are definitely commonalities in terms of how large organizations are always set up. Um, so if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't simply, I simply wouldn't be able to kind of um, stretch to putting myself in the shoes of the organizations that I work with. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's definitely that kind of sense of, okay, if I want to someday work in a think tank or work in a research organization or um, something of that nature, um, or go into um, a kind of political policy organization, um, what do I need to do so that when I get there, I have the right mixture of skills and background and essentially area knowledge so that I can really provide the most value in that kind of a role. Yeah, yeah. And when you were moving to your first role at TES, like how did you find, because obviously that was quite different in terms of more mm. quantitative, yeah. um, in terms of applying for that role, how you sort of sold your skills kind yeah. of in that setting? Um, uh, mixture of things. So um, I had applied for several different things around that time. I specifically remember I was applying for an internship in publishing as well. Um, and I was applying at NatSan uh, as well as at TES. And the TES connection um, 
was actually through a personal friend. Um, so again, networking, it, it comes down to, um, you know, it, it absolutely is about what you know, because, you know, when you show up in the room to be the one who's in the interview, you have to you have to pass the bar. But in terms of the knowledge about what roles are av available and out there, um, it really is helpful to not just be depending on job boards and um, kind of publicly available information. Um, having some knowledge about, um, you know, roles that either are not being advertised explicitly or um, in particular this role, when I first was applying in TES, they'd had a very hard time filling the role. And that's partly because it was a slightly unusual set up for the role. So a lot of the people that they were interviewing either had one um, side of the, the job that they were looking for covered already or they had the other side that they wanted. Um, so in this case, they wanted somebody who could do a lot of the kind of um, uh, analysis um, and day-to-day uh, -day reporting, but they also wanted someone who they could eventually train to do some of the, um, the actual uh, programming of the reporting tools. Mm. And what they were finding at the time was that they could, they could find someone who had one or the other very strongly who had a commercial background, but they were really struggling to find someone who either had both or wanted to do both because it was an unusual you know, expectation especially for that level of role. And of course, I come in as a newly graduated PhD, and I'm like, I can do anything. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to succeed in this job. And sometimes that extra flexibility of, of simply saying, hey, I'm willing to learn, um, it, can, it can sometimes put you in a better position simply because um, other people whose careers are more fixed or have a, a, a very um, focused career path in mind might not be interested in um, having that kind of broad range of skills. Um, and so, you know, for you to come in then and say, I can learn things very quickly and um, I'm very experienced in part of this or I, I'm very thorough in the way that I go about learning things um, can be a real advantage. And so um, that was eventually what happened was uh, because they'd had such a hard time filling the role, they were then willing to look slightly differently at what kind of mix of skills they needed. So essentially I showed up at the right time when um, they were um, looking for someone who was a little bit different than what they had initially had in mind. Um, and then when I was doing the interviewing, clearly they were impressed by the research skills that I had, um, but also um, some of the ways that I was thinking about or questioning some of the stuff that they were putting forward um, made them feel like, okay, this could be someone who can approach this role differently, um, which was really helpful for them. And interestingly enough, when I went to then move to the Leading Edge Forum where I work now, um, I knew that I was ready to move on from a role that was very quantitative and I wanted to get back into some of those more kind of core research skills that I developed mm -hmm. when I was here at Exeter. Um, and I was having a hard time because my role at that point was so quantitative that all anyone could see in me was, oh, she's an analyst, she's an analyst. And so it was very hard for them to see that um, the qualitative skills that I'd amassed in years previous simply weren't things that in their mind were showing up for them when I was mm -hmm. trying to put myself forward. Um, so, but the Leading Edge Forum was specifically looking for someone who wanted to do a digital anthropology program for them, program of research. Um, so again, it was just the right thing at the right time. It just matched up. That was what I wanted to do and that was what they needed. And again, they, they'd been having a hard time filling the role because they had a lot of people who either had a lot of commercial experience but didn't really have the kind of um, core research skills that I had, or they had a lot of people who um, had been doing um, very academic research for a long time but didn't have the... Um, the commercial experience and the context to operate in that world. So, um, you know, it's it's just about finding the right the right match at the right moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. And there's something about um, throughout kind of the importance of networking, finding out about jobs that are available and mm. the how kind of different people's experience and backgrounds in those industries 
getting and it sounds like that mix of experience between the academic and the kind of commercial industry industry type stuff and get having both those things um and like you said maybe trying to get some of those experiences during your phd being really helpful yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely it can be really powerful if you want to move into a commercial role um and i'd say also what i've observed um is that there are an increasing number of um public-private partnerships or um, academic, quasi-academic research um, skills or, um, or things of that nature where there's um, some kind of, um, oh, hey, we, the university, have a lot of research skills or a lot of scope for doing um, like innovation lab style stuff, but what we don't have is a lot of the commercial side of things. So they develop these um, like digital hubs or innovation hubs in different parts of the world, um, in different parts of the country. Um, and so there are often roles that are available that are kind of quasi-academic, but also really depend on the commercial experience as well. Um, so, you know, I haven't really had an experience of applying for those, but it's something I've observed as I've been thinking about um, my, f- my future career path. It's mm-hmm. something that I've observed is out there in the market. So there might be something like that, you know, if you're thinking about perhaps wanting to stick a bit closer on the academic side um, and maintaining those academic credentials and publishing and all of that. Um, you know, but also having a bit of commercial experience that would let you be that kind of linchpin between those two, um, those two things. So I'd say that's an interesting potential career path as well. It's adjacent to, but not exactly the same as the way that I've gone. Mm. So, um, and would there be any other kind of final tips you'd give someone kind of in the middle of your PhD or something you wish you'd done a bit differently when you were doing your own PhD? Mm. Um, I think the only other tip and again, this is probably something that is spoken about perhaps a bit more than when I was a student, is um, prioritize your own self-care. And I mean that not in a, um, you know, fluffy bubble bath kind of a way, although if that is something that works for you, then great. But um, really look after your own mental health and your own physical health, um, because if you don't have a working um, a working instrument, then it's going to be very difficult for you to play the sonata, basically. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that there are a lot of resources out there available now um, to enable students to um, to really care about those things and to, to look after themselves. Um, and also to, to develop those habits early in life, especially when you're in the kind of pressured environment that a master's or a PhD is. Um, that will put you in extremely good stead for later in life when you have pressured roles or um, are dealing with different kinds of pressures like balancing um, work and family or or financial concerns or whatever it might be. So developing those habits early on when you're at what might be the most pressured moment of your career ultimately um, will then help you. Everything else beyond that will seem like a piece of cake then. And that's it for this episode. Join us next time when we'll be talking to another researcher about their career beyond their research degree.